humans and friends. Welcome or welcome back to Mind Medicine. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, and it's my job to inspect and dissect some of the leading psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in the space of psychedelic-assisted therapy from all across the world to help shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions are urgently required if we're to have any chance of alleviating the suffering of individuals and the burden of mental health on society. Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness in Australia through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Mind Medicine Australia is providing educational material and events like this one, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, and of course, supporting clinical research. At Mind Medicine Australia, we believe that everyone should have access to the safest and most effective care. We're a small organisation doing big things, and we need your support. Alright, let's do this. Welcome. It has been a few months since I've got behind the microphone, and it certainly feels good to be back. I've had a bit of time traveling, but we've got some really, really exciting guests and neuroscientists and psychologists and philanthropists coming on this show to talk about psychedelic therapy and to talk about mental health and what we can do as a society and as a country to help alleviate the suffering that is so common amongst us all. Peter Hunt is an investor and engaged philanthropist. He's the founder of Green Hill Australia, Women's Community Shelters, and Mind Medicine Australia. Now, we speak about the scope of mental illness in Australia. We go through some of the stats, how staggeringly common it is. We talk about which breakthrough therapies Mind Medicine is looking at. So, we are looking at psilocybin and MDMA most closely. So we explore some of the psychological phenomena and the scientific evidence surrounding that. We chat about antidepressants and SSRIs and how common their use is and their effectiveness and ineffectiveness to many people. We talk about reinforcement of mental illness through the diagnosis of, of the illness itself, destigmatizing drugs, the context of psychedelic psychotherapy, including its set and setting. We chat through TGA updates, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, so kind of like the, the FDA of Australia. So for those of you who don't know what the FDA is, it's the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. So the FDA have granted breakthrough therapy designation to both psilocybin for major depressive disorder and MDMA for PTSD. All of the approval processes are being fast-tracked to allow these medicines to, to come to the general public and to be available to people who really need it. So we discuss how drug and medicinal laws work on both a federal and state level. We also discuss what a bad trip is because a lot of the fear and uncertainty within these medicines is the, the risk of this bad trip. We discuss what a bad trip actually is. We discuss the, the context of psychedelic psychotherapy and how it is a safe container that enables these difficult and challenging thoughts and experiences to come to existence or to consciousness and work through them and understand them. So part of this medicine and this therapy is the challenging trip because that is what we are working through. If there are parts of your mind that you are not dealing with or haven't dealt with, 
they will come up during one of these experiences. And if you're not equipped with a guided facilitator, if you're not with someone you trust, if you're not in a safe environment, the chances for things to go wrong are much, much higher. But we get into that in far more detail in this conversation. So again, if you have any questions related to this, you are more than welcome to send me an email personally, tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. I'm also running the Geelong chapter within Australia. So if you are in the Geelong region, feel free to reach out and, and come support us because we do need the support and we do need more people to become aware of these substances. But if you're listening to this and you don't know too much about this medicine, well, we go through it in far greater detail. So I'm going to leave it at that and I'll see you on the other side. Peter, welcome. It's so strange that I'm welcoming you to a conversation, but that speaks to the technological advantages that we live in today. So welcome to the Mind Medicine Podcast, first and foremost. Thank you very much. It's nice to uh, be part of this. Yeah, and it's nice to meet you properly for the first time. It's nice to be able to sit down with you and understand the inner workings of the heart of Mind Medicine Australia, so to speak. But let's start with how do you describe what you do? Uh, What we're about is bringing these... uh therapies to Australia to make sure that people who are suffering from uh, treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant PTSD, substance abuse and other other, uh, treatment-resistant mental illnesses which could benefit from these therapies have access to them. And uh, we do that in a really determined way through education, training and uh, advocating. And we determine that uh, people who need these therapies should have access to them. And that should be irrespective of where people reside and irrespective of their wealth. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, how did mind medicine first come to fruition? Where did that first spark of idea or innovation in this field of research come? Uh, well, I mean, the, by way of background, both Tanya and myself, we're, we're, we're serial uh, philanthropists, and we've got a habit of starting charities. Tanya started two before this one, and I've started two. Uh, and we start charities because we want to see social change, we came across these therapies by chance, as often happens in life. Tanya came across, across some research which showed incredible remission rates for treatment-resistant depression and treatment-resistant PTSD. Uh, I mean, frankly, when I first heard the results, it sounded too good to be true. But because we're fairly tenacious people, we delved into the research, we spoke to researchers and scientists overseas, and we came to the conclusion that uh, not only were these therapies safe and real but they could become incredibly effective in terms of helping people, uh, well, getting people well who suffer from debilitating mental illnesses. Totally. And I guess how we see mental illness being treated today, uh, you're getting pharmaceuticals that you're expected to be on for the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's kind of, I mean, when you look at the remission rates of something like SSRIs, where it's like at most 35%, yeah. and then you get prescribed that medicine, SSRIs, it's like, hey, let's try this but only one third of people are going to get improved from this. So let's try this and then go from there. I guess it's so disheartening to see the lack in innovation in treatment. It's disheartening. And in fact, uh, one of the people that we work with, Professor Arthur Christopoulos, who's Dean of the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at uh, Monash, what he, what he always says is that the, the science behind current psychi- psychiatric medicines is more than 50 years old. So, you know, we're, we're using the science of... Uh, of you know, Apollo going to the moon, that sort of era, in treatments in 2021. And you're dead right. I mean, the problem with 
antidepressants. I mean, they work with some people. So all those people who are listening to this who uh, find that uh, their antidepressants are really working and they're not causing nasty side effects, you know, keep taking them. Uh, but, if, but if you're finding that they're not working uh, or they're giving you nasty side effects, really important that as a, as a country we think laterally about, uh, about treatments that really work. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, the way I got into psychedelic research or science or in, in the mental health area is, I mean, by virtue of background, I am a nutritionist and exercise scientist. So I'm always looking at health, how to improve health from sleep to hydration to your diet. But even if you get all of those perfectly correct, we still have this mysterious mind, brain, spirit, whatever we want to call it, that for some people is incredibly difficult and debilitating. And what I find really interesting about, I guess, psychedelics within a psychotherapy setting is this ability to almost detach yourself from those thoughts. And it's this identity of thought that seems to be, I mean, we all face mental mental difficulty and we all face some degree of rumination that is to think about how we are feeling or theory of mind and we all we all face that day to day and it's how seriously we take these thoughts that can lead to depression or anxiety or whatever mental illness it is and yeah it's it's scary to think that people are not empowered to see change because of these the treatments that are available are just not helping people. So what are the stats within Australia in terms of mental health? Yeah, well, before I even talk about the stats, I mean, the key thing that I think you're, you're talking about is that at the heart of all health is mental health. In other words, if you, if you haven't got mental health, it's very hard to be healthy overall. And in fact, people with chronic mental, health con- mental illness conditions, in terms of lifespan, their lifespan is shorter than somebody who doesn't have mental uh, illness condition, you know, on average. In terms of the stats, I mean, the stats are truly truly dreadful and we need to start talking about them because they're not acceptable. Uh, Australia has the second worst mental illness statistics in the world uh, on, on a per-person basis. The leader is, is uh, Iceland and you, when you think about it, Iceland, it, it's dark for nearly six months of the year. We have sunshine and yet we're the second in the world in terms of worst mental illness statistics. It's one in five of us, according to the Productivity Commission, has a chronic mental illness today. One in two of us will have a chronic mental illness at some stage in their lifetime. Then you start digging underneath that and you find that that, uh, one in eight of us are now on antidepressants. One in four older people. uh, And this statistic, next one, is truly dreadful. One in 30 younger people. And some young people as young as four are now on antidepressants. Uh, it's up 95% over the last 15 years. Now, if that dramatic increase had led to a dramatic reduction in mental illness, you'd be saying, well, actually, these treatments are great, but actually it hasn't reduced mental illness. In fact, mental illness is, is uh, inevitably getting worse. Mm. So they're pretty bad, and uh, we need to talk about them because at the heart of uh, a fulfilling life is mental health. Totally. What I do want to touch on in when you're first, I guess, diagnosed with a mental illness, you might look at the stats or you might look at these treatments and, and see that, you know, maybe I'm never going to get healed from this. But it's also, I feel that that medicalization of experience, it's like you have depression and then you become identified with the depression. And so when these 
depression thoughts come, which all of us have depressive thoughts here and there. It's how literally do you take them? But then when you're so identified with this depressed person, you go, oh, here's the depression again. And, you know, it seems to be reinforced as well. And what I seem to dislike is that, you know, we're othering these people with mental illness as though they're someone else who just doesn't get the gift of normal brain chemistry. But what we're finding is that is so far from the truth. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, one of the great problems is that if you're taking antidepressants, you're being reminded on a daily basis that you've got depression. You know, the mere fact that you're taking tablets is reinforcement that you've got a mental illness. Uh, and you're dead right. What, what's actually happening with antidepressants is they're palliative. They're actually smothering the condition. They're smothering the lows, but they're also smothering the highs. And really what we should be aiming for is people just getting well. And the beauty of these therapies is you're talking about two to three sessions with the medicines at most and very high remission rates. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the remission rates were up to 80% in yeah. both MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for depression. Yeah, and that's extraordinary because, you know, current remission rates for PTSD are somewhere between 5 and 10%. Uh, so you're talking about uh, a quantum leap in terms of people getting well. Not mm. everybody, but when you're talking about remission rates of 60 to 80%, uh, if you've got PTSD, these are treatments you should be having. Definitely. Yeah. To talk about these medicines is that when people hear MDMA or when people hear psychedelics, there's this mental imagery that seems to come to mind that is probably birthed from the 1960s and you know the, the era of, of love and, and yep. the counterculture movement. It seems to be inextricably intertwined with, with that movement and still lingers on today. So there seems to be even psychiatrists and psychologists and neuroscientists who are actually going against what these treatments are suggesting. Yeah, and again, uh, that's all linked into culture, that if you've grown up uh, with the belief, uh, a false belief, that these are not medicines, they're dangerous, uh, it's actually hard to break away from that, even if the data shows you that it's, uh, it, it's a lie, uh, because you've just been inbred with this view that actually uh, psilocybin in the form of magic mushrooms and MDMA have to be innately bad, but actually, it's not the substance that's bad. It's it's potentially the use of the substance that's bad. So, you know, alcohol, we can sit around having dinner and we can have a glass of wine and that can relax us and we can have convivial discussion. And that's fabulous. Or we can drink too much and uh, beat up our, our loved one and get in the car and kill somebody. Uh, it's not the alcohol that's a problem. It's how we use the alcohol. Uh, it's the same with these substances. I mean, these substances actually have been shown to be incredibly safe, even in a recreational environment. Uh, but it is how we use them. And when you're talking about using them as medicine, you're talking about all the medical controls and safety controls being in place to make sure that the patient's safety is paramount. Yeah. We've, got to we've got to lose our fear and just look at the data and the facts. And then okay. cultural change will follow. And there's also the, I guess, the unawareness of how a psychotherapy session is actually running. Yep. I guess many people might just have the idea of like, as common pharmaceuticals is you get given them and take them home and yep. take them to fix your depression. But do you care to explain how these substances are used as medicine and not just like a common pharmaceutical? Yeah. Well, the, the key thing is that the medicines by themselves aren't the solution. You've got to combine the medicines with therapy uh, in the case of both therapies, you will be taking the medicines in a medically controlled environment, a hospital or a clinic. You'll have two therapists in the room when you take the medicines. 
in the run-up to taking the medicines, you'll be meeting with your psychotherapist uh, to get comfortable with the process and get to know the psychotherapist. Uh, on the day of the medicine session, uh, you'll be in a room which is nicely decked out to feel comfortable. You'll lie on a couch. You, you'll, you may have headphones on to, to listen to some beautiful music. Uh, you may have uh, eye shades on so that you can just really be with yourself. And then you take the medicine and uh, in the case of MDMA, what the MDMA will do is it'll just relax you. It'll make you feel really comfortable and really well supported. And it's in that comfort support environment that uh, if you have PTSD, you're able to start talking about what happened without triggering the fear response because you feel in a really safe environment. And that means that when you come out of it, uh, your last memory of the trauma or the events behind the trauma is being able to talk about it in an environment where you felt comfortable and you felt safe. But as I say, it has to be combined with, uh, with therapy. Uh, psilocybin is quite different. Uh, psilocybin, you'll go into that same room, put on the eye shades, play the music, and you'll be taken into an altered state. And you'll be in that altered state for maybe six hours. But when you come out, and this is the, this is the, the heart of psilocybin, when you come out, you will feel incredibly connected. And if you think about depression, depression is all about feeling disconnected. Uh, you'll feel incredibly connected and it's, it's in that sort of feeling of connection that the therapist can then work with you to enable that f- sense of connection to last. And, that, that's, and if it lasts, it's, it's, uh, you're in remission from depression. So you're dead right. I mean, that, the medicines don't work by themselves. They have to be part of therapy. But the beauty is it's a relatively short uh, period with the medicines and it's a relatively short period of therapy as well. Yeah, awesome. Just to continue on with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, I think it's really important when to discuss trauma is that when emotions or when memories are laid down, there's obviously the physical memory of what took place, what you saw, what you heard, but then there's also the emotional memory um, that's also laid down. And they're, I mean, they're laid down together, but they're also kind of separate in the brain. Um, and if we're talking about the level of the brain here. And through that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you're encouraged to kind of look at that trauma. And because the, the way that the MDMA works is that there's a blood redistribution away from the amygdala, which is like the, the fear response. Yep. So you're essentially laying down a new memory, the same physical memory, but laying down a new emotional response. And it's that emotional response that causes that emotional flooding and lots and lots of distress in, in the patient. And so you have this window of being able to replant that memory to then look at it in, in such a different way and accept it for what it is and not have that emotional baggage attached to it. And psilocybin is obviously an incredibly interesting um, medicine and field of research. And again, I like talking about the level of the brain because I like that um, distinction between the psychological phenomena but then also the pharmacology of of how these drugs take place and what happens at the level of the brain. So there's this blood redistribution away from the default mode network, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And essentially that it's a network that's kind of in the middle of the brain or midline structures of the brain that's involved in a lot of self-referential processing, theory of mind or the autobiographical self, like we were talking about before, that rumination. And this brain, part of the brain lights up seemingly when we're not doing anything. We're not involved in any external task. We're not running. We're not 
recording a podcast or not essentially doing anything. We're just kind of being. And it's this state that the birth of a lot of mental illness comes in. And so what psilocybin can do is actually put the blood that was originally going to this place of rumination to all other areas of the brain. So there's actually this dissolving of the self. And so you mentioned how you feel connected, you feel with everyone. And it's this the rumination and this consolidation of information that actually separates us from the rest of the world. And so I find it really interesting discussing this and looking at it in a, in a psychotherapeutic setting of how a dissolving of the self, and when we think of the self, we often think of you know, the, the ego, and obviously there's a lot of connotations with that word. But when we are really in tune with our experiences and sensual perceptions, there is that feeling of unity and divinity and connection to everyone and everything that anyone who's involved in a psychotherapy session with psilocybin is um, is talking about. Now, what are the next stages? We've, we've seen the results over in the States with MAPS and with Compass Pathways and um, other organisations and, and companies pushing this forward. We're in Australia and we, I guess, run under the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Can you explain what's happening with the TGA and Mind Medicine Australia at the moment and what the future might be with these medicines? Yeah, if you look at the, uh, the way medicines are dealt with legally in Australia, there are two types of medicines, uh, prescribable medicines, which are medicines that uh, are on the Therapeutic Goods Register. And they've gone through the Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3 trials and uh, been reviewed by the TGA. And uh, you know, if the review is positive, they've been put on the register. So when you go to your doctor and your doctor writes a prescription, most of those things that he's writing are, are medicines that are on the register. There's then a second category of medicines which are called unregistered medicines. So they haven't gone through that whole process. Uh, doctors can use those unregistered medicines for patients, but only on a patient-by-patient basis. So they have to seek specific approval from the, the TGA each time. If you think about medicinal cannabis, uh, medicinal cannabis is not a, not a, pres- not a, a registered medicine, it's an unregistered medicine, and therefore for those of you who go to your doctor and get prescribed unregistered, get prescribed medicinal cannabis, what the doctor is doing is he's making a, an application on a patient-by-patient basis to the TGA to justify the use of that medicine. At the moment, uh, with both psilocybin and, and MDMA-assisted therapy, they are not yet registered medicines. They will inevitably be in the future, but they're not registered medicines at the moment. So for a doctor to use them, a doctor has to get permission on a patient-by-patient basis from the TGA. And that's happening. Uh, We've now had about 30 to 40 approvals from the TGA for the use of these medicines. They're given within 24 hours of an application being made. So that's all really positive. But there is a problem. And the problem is that currently these medicines are Schedule 9 medicines under the poison standard. Schedule 9 medicines mean, or Schedule 9 substances mean that they have no medical use, no medical benefit. And the problem of that scheduling is that uh, at the state level, there is no approval process for states to approve the use of these medicines. And that means a doctor can get approval from the TGA to use the medicines, but if he then tries to use the medicine in a state, because there's no approval mechanism, he will fall foul of the criminal recreational provisions and he could be prosecuted, he or she could be prosecuted. 
which is obviously an absurd situation uh, associated with our federal state system. What we're doing is we're seeking to have them rescheduled to Schedule 8, which is controlled medicines. If that happens, then there is a, there is a pathway in each state and territory which will enable state and territorial governments to give their approval, again on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, to the use of these medicines. So it's a pretty important rescheduling from 9 to 8. Where is it now? We've applied for it. We've been rejected at the interim stage. Uh, the rejection arguments from the TGA, I have to say, are incredibly superficial. Uh, we've gone back now uh, with a submission, looking at the arguments being used by the TGA. On the basis of the science and the data, we should be successful. But it's like all things, we're still fighting that prejudice and stigma. And often people don't admit that they uh, have prejudice. They just make up their minds that something's inappropriate and find reasons why something shouldn't happen. And that's the challenge we've got at the moment. Yeah, it's a lot. It's, <laughs> it's, it seems to be confusing a lot of people. Yeah. And when it's a state-by-state -state basis, but then it's the TGA that's the governing body, it can be very confusing. And you're right, there is an awful lot of prejudice that is going on and had a conversation a few weeks ago, we were talking before we started recording, I had a conversation with Greg Barnes as to how does stigma come down? Is it policy change first, then stigma comes down? Or does it kind of need to be, we need to reduce the stigma for a chance for the policy to change? And he said, well, it's kind of a combination of both. So I guess what Mind Medicine are doing, we've got I guess, educational material and events like this one, developing therapist training and really looking across the board um, in terms of educating and making people more aware of these substances because I guess the common person would be subject to the news headlines and, and what we've seen in the past with psychedelics and the, the fear mongering that happens. But that's not to say there isn't any psychological risks with these substances. I think it is important that we touch on that and how we control or what's called a, a bad trip. Do you, do you want to touch on what are the psychological risks of taking these substances and how can we control of, of them? Well, I, let's go through each substance because they are very different. Uh, with MDMA, you know, provided that uh, you're doing it in a medically controlled environment and you've got uh, good therapists, you know, therapists who've been properly trained, the risks actually are minuscule. Uh, they're safe to use. Uh, the safety data is very clear. And all the psychotherapist is seeking to do is to get you to actually start talking about what happened, but in an environment where you feel comfortable. So in that environment, uh, I mean, they're, they're safe. There have been, there've been no adverse impacts in any of the trials to date, uh, except one where somebody's heart rate went up a bit and that was brought under control very quickly. And that was an issue where the person hadn't actually disclosed they'd had uh, heart problems. Uh, so that's MDMA. Uh, with psilocybin, the bad trip is actually part of the therapy. So it's estimated that maybe one in four people will have a so-called bad trip where they're, they're seeing things in terms of their altered state, which makes them feel really uncomfortable. But actually, you know, if, if you've got depression, one of the benefits of these medicines is, is that they force you to face up to the problem that's causing the depression. And people t term that a bad trip, but actually it's, it's the nature of the bad trip that actually gets you well because it's forcing you to face up to the problem that's causing the depression in the first place. And that's the beauty of these medicines. 
And again, in a medically controlled environment uh, with, with the support of psychotherapists, these medicines are very safe and these therapies are very safe. Yeah, definitely. And what you've spoken about really well is, is the set and setting yep. coined by Albert Hoffman. Um, so the set being the mindset, the psychological expectations. Obviously, this is in a psychotherapeutic environment. Um, and the setting being the physical environment as well as the clinician-patient relationship. And when you monitor for all of these, when you understand what your set and setting is and you feel safe and you know what you're going in for, the chances of things going bad is very, very low. It's this stigma that people associate with most psychedelics is like, oh, what if I have a bad trip? And so these difficult experiences come and they often do come because of the nature of these substances. It, the, the word psychedelic, psyche coming from the mind or the soul and delic coming from delos being to make clear visible. So you're making your entire mind visible and so a lot of your mind is quite scary. Yep. And so when that comes up, you want to be in that safe environment. Spot but on. if you're not in that controlled environment and these things come up, that's when you start panicking. The anxiety comes in. You're not in that safe setting. And so you hear these words, oh, the bad trip's coming, the bad trip's coming. But it's because you haven't controlled for all of these things. And so therein lies some of the psychological risks. But again, like we've been saying, you're accompanied by two guides or facilitators who have been trained with this and can support you through that whole duration. Yep. Yep. Just worth, because uh, again, we're talking about psilocybin here. If you think about the baby state, a baby's born and it's lying in its crib and it's looking at the, uh, uh, the little toys above the crib. Th- that baby has got no idea whether those toys are real or not real. It's just lying there and it's gurgling and it's got a completely open mind and, you know, in my case, when I was, you know, a day old or two days old, I wasn't lying in the crib thinking, my name's Peter Hunt and this is my background. I was just lying there taking into account all the things that were happening around me. And in a sense, I was in a psychedelic state because I couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't real. And then what happens to us in, in our interactions with our parents, our loved ones, uh, people day to day, our world starts to get constrained because we see how people react to us. And we respond to that by building protection around us. Uh, and once we get to a adulthood, uh, we've got a lot of protection around us in terms of how we think, uh, lots of different programs, a cultural view of the world, and that constrains the way we, we interact with the world. As you said quite rightly, Tommy, with, with psilocybin, the beauty of psilocybin is it takes away all of those constraints. So suddenly you're almost in a baby state again, looking at the world afresh and realising that actually this world is pretty tremendous and it's pretty special to be alive and it's extraordinary the number of people that come out of the psilocybin experience saying this is either the top or one of the five top things that's ever happened to me because they've seen the world afresh, they, they feel connected and it's in that sense of connection that the therapist can work with them to make sure that the feeling of connection is permanent uh, and doesn't fade away. It's an incredibly special medicine but as you say, you know, don't go out there into a field and just pick the mushrooms and take the mushrooms. You need to be in an environment where you feel safe and secure. And if bad things arise during the session, that's actually good because it's you facing up to the problems which are, co- which are causing your depression. Yeah, absolutely spot on. And what you were alluding to before in terms of that, I guess, baby state, um, because through childhood and through 
communication and language, we build up this perception of ourself. And so we're always playing the role of the self. That's right. And so when you build up the evidence to suggest that, you know, you're a sad person or a happy person or whatever it might be, you're always playing that role. And then through this psychedelic state, that gets ripped away. Everything seems to be be fresh and and new and and colourful in in some settings. And this is a real window in, in redesigning that self. It's like, well, what self are you actually going back to? And it's, it's this window that seems to be so integral in changing our thought and habit patterns. It's you have this almost disruption of normal waking consciousness. And then when you re-enter that normal waking state, it's, well, what am I going back to? How do I want to interact with the world? What is my perception of myself? Yep. No, that's, that's very true. And again, it's why they're so different from antidepressants. You know, an antidepressant is really trying to smother the problem but it's not curing the problem, whereas this is actually forcing you inside yourself to work out what the problem is and deal with it. And as you say quite rightly, because you come out feeling incredibly connected, that is the antithesis of depression. Depression is a feeling of disconnection. If you come out of the experiences you will do feeling incredibly connected, then actually you're on the pathway to health, provided that you're working with uh, a trained psychotherapist. Now we're going to divert back a little bit in terms of TGA and what a drug reform looks like. Just speaking with friends and colleagues about drug reform, they often just think, oh, complete legalisation of all substances. But that isn't really how a drug reform could or does work. So let's talk about what is decriminalisation, what is depenalisation and what is legalisation and where does where do these substances... You mentioned before that Schedule 8 is the proposed... Uh, amendment of these substances, but but what would that mean in terms of law? The Schedule 8 uh, listing of psilocybin and MDMA would be a listing for medical purposes within a medically controlled environment. So the rescheduling wouldn't in any any way change the laws in relation to uh, recreational drug taking. Uh, that That is a very different matter, although I have to say that I think if MDMA therapy and psilocybin therapy become part of our medical system... Over time, what that will mean is that more and more people get comfortable that these substances are actual, actually safe, and hopefully that will encourage our legislators and policy makers to more and more look at the science and the data rather than, uh, rather than prejudice in the design of drug laws. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think about who are these people who are facing mental difficulties. It's like you you might be born in a difficult family environment, you might be abused by your parents and then lead into something like a drug addiction. And then with, I guess, as a response to your mental health condition, you're trying to search for, for love or appreciation through other avenues. And then you are now in combat with the law. And so the law is against you, even though you're just trying to find out, I guess, trying to find love or, or meaning or, or whatever it is. And so it seems very unjust to have these criminalised when they are therapeutically recognised. That isn't to say we encourage recreation use. That's not at all what we're saying. But what we're saying, or what I'm saying, is that people who are born or are raised in those difficult situations need to be helped. Yep. And one thing psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is looking at is drug addiction and there's this counterintuitive <laughs> counterintuitiveness about well why would you treat drug addiction with drugs, drugs. <laughs> but that kind of raises the question of how we're actually using the word drug when you've got heroin caffeine 
psilocybin, um, what else is there, paracetamol, all in the same category, it kind of loses its meaning a little bit. And I think we need to desensitise from the word drug. And, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the word drug and the stigma attached with that? Oh, you're spot on. You know, if, if I have a, uh, two cups of coffee every day and then I, not, I, I miss my coffee, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to feel some sort of withdrawal because I'm used to that caffeine. Uh, in other words, I'm slightly addicted to coffee and I, I admit that. Uh, it's the same with somebody smoking a cigarette. Uh, it can be the same with somebody uh, having alcohol. The reality is that neither MDMA or psilocybin are addictive. So if you have psilocybin today, you're not going to rush out and have psilocybin tomorrow. Uh, so you're using a non-addictive medicine to treat somebody with a, an addiction for another substance. Uh, the other thing about the use of these medicines is that uh, if you think about people who are heavy addicts, addicts, say on ice or on heroin, are the results we get from trying to get people off these highly addictive substances are actually are actually pretty poor. Uh, there's a high relapse rate, uh, and the problem that we essentially have is that most of our programs aren't going to the cause of the addiction; they're trying to treat the addiction. The cause of the, the addiction is likely to be trauma. Uh, in fact, Gabor Mate uh, would say that every addiction is caused by some form of trauma. So unless you treat the trauma, you're never going to actually solve the problem with the addiction. And that's what these medicines are designed to do, or MDMA is designed to do. It's designed to treat the trauma so you no longer feel the need for the addiction. Um, but you're right. I mean, we, we, we use the word drug too loosely. And in fact, there's a wonderful study that's done... Uh, by a group of researchers and first responders that looks at the risks of different types of so-called drugs. And what they find in that study, it came out of Melbourne University last year, is that the biggest risk is actually alcohol in terms of damage to self, damage to society. The second one is crystal meth. I think the third one is heroin. Cigarettes are right up there. Uh, MDMA and psilocybin in terms of risks are, are right at the other end of the chart, very low risk by comparison. But we've got to actually educate people because there's too much prejudice out there. Definitely. People speak before they actually look at the science and the data. Definitely. Yeah, yeah and just to, to touch on, I guess, alcohol and, and heroin is, I mean, alcohol is encouraged in Australia and it seems so absurd that we're encouraging something that does damage to your liver and brain but at the same time is, yeah, almost weird if you don't have alcohol or, or anything like that. So what... Uh, the goals of My Medicine Australia, and what what are we doing as a charity? What are, what are our pillars to help educate and create awareness? Yeah, well, look, the first thing is that we're a not for profit, and we're we're intentionally a not for profit because we have only one fundamental uh, focus, and that's to help people suffering from mental illness and give them the chance to get well. The focus is on psychedelic assisted therapies, uh, primarily at this stage, psilocybin. Assisted therapy for depression and MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, simply because they're the most advanced in terms of the data and the trials. Uh, we want to bring them to Australia. We want them to be affordable for every Australian that needs them. And we want them to be an integral part of our medical system and accessible irrespective of where you live in, in Australia. So it's a pretty ambitious uh, goal and it would involve a paradigm shift in the way that we think about these medicines. Uh, four key strategies. The first one is awareness building. So this sort of this podcast is part of that awareness building. It's making people hopefully think again 
and start to focus on the science and the data rather than on prejudice. Uh, and we hold a host of webinars. Uh, Tanya and I and others at Mind Medicine are constantly uh, leading discussion groups, providing material to regulators, politicians, doctors, psychiatrists, and so on. So that's all about education and awareness. The second stream is that we've, we've got a, uh, a therapist training course in psychedelic therapies. And we've got that for two reasons. Firstly, because you know, if you're dealing with somebody in an altered state, you need to be trained as a therapist to know how that person's likely to react and be ready if they react in certain ways. Uh, the second reason is that we wanted to take away, if you like, the, the opportunity for the regulator to say, hey, these look interesting, but we haven't got trained therapists, therefore we shouldn't be using them. Uh, the first intake started in January. We've got 47 therapists going through that intake, uh, of which about nine are psychiatrists, psychologists, and other, nine are psychiatrists, and we've got psychologists and psychotherapists on top of that. Uh, that's a 14-week program. We're about halfway through. The second intake is in July. And what we'll do is we'll keep growing uh, the number of intakes because we have a massive uh, challenge in Australia in terms of having enough therapists to meet the demand for these therapies. The third limb to the strategy is to promote the establishment of a centre of excellence at a university or universities. And the aim of that is to be at the forefront of developing these medicines, developing the thera therapies, understanding health economics, and just making more and more people feel comfortable because they are part of our university system. And we're well advanced in that with two universities, and hopefully there'll be a, an announcement on that in the next few months. And then the last one is the, all the myriad of things you've got to do in order to make these therapies happen in Australia. So it's you know rescheduling the medicines, it's... Uh, developing clinic rollouts. It's working through uh, health fund insurance to make sure that the costs can be minimised to the patient. It's making sure that in time these medicines become available in the PBS. It's all that myriad of things you've got to do. And it's also things like protocols, standard operating practices, training manuals, uh, to make people feel comfortable that these medicines will be used in a sensible way. So it's a, you know, it's a holistic approach. And uh, it's uh, intentionally ambitious because we've got a big problem to solve. But I have to say uh, the support we're getting uh, from, reg from politicians, uh, from psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, pharmacologists, uh, general practitioners and members of the general public is fabulous. People just want to see change. They want to see an end to suffering. And it does feel like we are in a period of big change. You see it over in the States with MAPS and they're in yep. phase three with MDMA. So, I mean, that's getting fast track in terms of the approval process. Yep. So there is an inevitability about it. Oh, it's going to happen. Yeah, it, it, it does seem like it, it will definitely happen. It's just a matter of when and who can get these treatments. And we have great psychiatrists in Australia. We, do. we just don't have the treatment options available to heal these people and looking back to, to we we're talking about addiction before it's like someone injecting heroin in the street versus being prescribed morphine by your doctor that's the kind of analogy we're looking at when we're looking at psychedelic assisted psychotherapy it's a fundamentally different experience when you are with a trained facilitator who understands the psyche who understands um, your level of thinking and can 
I guess, push you in the way of understanding your own um, mind and, and body and, and spirit to really fix yourself and, and heal yourself. And I guess the way to, to heal yourself is to understand why you are doing the things that you're doing or why, what, what is the reason for those thoughts that are coming? What, what's the reason for your addiction? Like we were speaking before, it's, you can almost bring it all the way back to childhood in, in a lot of, lot of ways. It's like we're looking for love or, or we're looking for that approval and if we don't get it, then we try to find it through different ways and this can go on for decades and it can come out as trauma, it can come out as depression or anxiety and it's so wonderful to be a part of such a progressive organisation that is really paving the way forward for mental illness in Australia and I'm thankful to be a part of it um, and I'm looking forward to, to working together in the future. Is there anything else you would like to add before we close this one out? Yeah, just, just a, a comment on cultural change. I mean, some, some wise person who I forget the name of once said that uh, cultural change seems... Sorry, c- culture is fixed until it changes. And, you know, we've seen that uh, in the Western world. You know, it wasn't so long ago, maybe 100 years ago, that, uh, or 120 years ago, that the concept of women voting was regarded as completely ridiculous. And yet now, if somebody suggested a woman couldn't vote... We'd regard that person as frankly, uh, uh, frankly ridiculous. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that the concept of gay marriage was something that was culturally abhorrent. You know, uh, it wasn't so long ago actually that uh, male homosexuals could be chemically castrated for homosexuality. And yet now, if we suggested that uh, there was anything wrong with uh, homosexuality or gay marriage, you know, the culture's changed. It's accepted, and exactly the same thing's going to happen with these medicines. The world would look fixed until it changes, and when it changes, people will look back and think, God, how stupid people were and how prejudiced people were not to use these medicines to help people that were suffering. Wonderful. You've summed that up brilliantly. Thank you so much for, firstly, meeting you for the first time. It's great to to connect with you, and I'm looking forward to being able to to progress this podcast further and and work with you in in any capacity that I can. So thank you very much. Thank you for for your involvement. It's lovely having you aboard. (laughs) More than welcome. Awesome. Well, there it is, friends. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. It was really great to finally sit down with someone in person. It feels like all this time I've been hiding behind the computer or (laughs) hiding behind the keyboard, but it it was really, really nice to to sit down with Peter in person and to chat about all the things that we did. If you want to support our endeavors, please do leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This helps expose this information to people who are looking for it. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic-assisted therapies or related information or would like to know a little bit more about the services, the events or programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, make sure you head to mindmedicineaustralia.org and you will find all the information you need right there. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. If you have come all the way to the end, thank you so, so much. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes. I hope you're learning something. 
I'm certainly learning things as I go and if there is something that you're curious about or if you have a question related to mind medicine, you are again more than welcome to send me an email. The email is tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. So until then, sleep well, eat well, move well, connect with yourself, invest in yourself and I will see you here for the next one.